0: Hey everyone, it's Matthew Zachary, co-founder of Offscript Health, host of the Out of Patients podcast and host of this show, Testing Our Patients, a two-part behind-the-scenes look at the struggles of bringing life-saving diagnostic tests and breakthrough medicines to cancer patients in desperate need of hope. In our first episode, I spoke with Allison Silberman, the CEO of Stupid Cancer, and Lizette Figueroa of the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Both women are longtime patient advocates who spoke about the need for patient accessibility in diagnostics, particularly in regards to MRD. And now, in part two of our series, an episode we're calling, What the FDA? We're gonna speak with two more patient advocates who've worked tirelessly across decades to make MRD testing available to even more patients. Oh, and by the way, they just happen to be two of the most influential doctors in cancer. So we're here to talk about the idea, basically the, the dogmatic idea, that if you're diagnosed with cancer, any cancer for that matter, just we'll, we'll do a, a total top-down, and there's some kind of diagnostic test that could predict good or bad things for you, no matter what it is, and that you probably have a right to know That there is that thing that could help you go in either direction, but you're not aware of it, and if you are, you can't afford it, and if you can, you can't get it. That's the gist of this entire conversation, and we're focused on MRD because it seems to be sort of the consummate allegory for this tale. I'm now joined by Dr. Rafael Fonseca, the Chief Innovation Officer at Mayo Clinic in Arizona. All righty, Rafael, let's get started here. Can you start by talking to me about how you first got into this line of work? What drove you into myeloma research and all your experience in this testing universe? Absolutely. My my story and
1: how I got to myeloma is probably beyond the scope of what we want to discuss here today, but I'll just summarize it in having good mentors. That's how I got into this. But one of the beautiful parts of working in the field of myeloma is that uh, this is a disease where we have the best biomarkers, pretty much for any cancer, I would say for any any human disease that I know of. And the reason is just the nature of the myeloma cells. They produce proteins, and we have tests that we can measure uh, those proteins. We measure their concentration in their blood, in the urine, and multiple ways of measuring that. So uh, myeloma has been at the forefront of the development of tests that allow you to and diagnose, monitor, you know, establish whether a treatment is working or not, and so forth. But as time has gone on, we have better tools and we have more technology, right? And with that comes a greater ability to test with a greater precision and a greater depth. And that's how we ended up, uh, you know, in this topic of, of MRD. A colleague of mine once told me, like, this: it's, it's pretty bizarre that, you know, we have these deep conversations about what might be the utility of something like this. He said, let's start with this premise. Less cancer is good, right? And I said, yeah, who can argue with that? And, and in fact, that statement, if you translate that to just, you know, how MRD is being used and, you know, what its, uh, uh, role is in establishing prognosis, it is very, very clear that this is a test that has the greatest ability to predict outcomes for patients. And I would argue for treatment. We'll talk about that too, as well, how we go about selecting treatments. But, clearly it's here to stay, and it's uh, the ultimate benchmark now for, for assessing treatments that are been done for myeloma patients.
0: Is there any one specific thing you could point to as to where the, let me think of the right word to say this, where the cholesterol lives in the artery of getting this test available to everyone that needs it or qualifies for it?
1: I think the problem is that people want to treat this in a way that is somewhat exceptional, And this reminds me of when we were doing the clinical care for patients with HIV and AIDS, uh, you know, 25, 30 years ago, where the testing was considered exceptional. And it required a separate consent. And it required, you know, more things than you did back then than what we did for the average test. And it was no different from doing a blood count or all the other tests. But it was taken to that level of exceptional. And I think MRD testing is just merely one more test. When people want to treat it as exceptional... They want it to be like the test that decides everything everything 100%, and there's nothing in medicine that is 100%, perhaps pathology, but even pathology can be questioned. But the termination of MRD is just one of the many ways by which we can measure the progress we're making in the treatment of something. So, people are, are saying, well, you know, this MRD is kind of interesting, but now we have to do clinical trials. And to that, I ask the following questions. Did we do clinical trials to test the protein electrophoresis? the serum-free light chain, for that matter, the CAT scan or even the physical examination. And the answer is no. We just bring information that is derived from all this technological improvements and developments that allow us to be better at what we do. In myeloma, for instance, we also have bone destruction. That's one of the features of, of the disease. And you know, 10 and 15 years ago, we were doing this horrible test that's called the skeletal survey. So we pretty much took x-rays of every single bone in the person's body. Now imagine you're a person who has uh, pain because of the myeloma and you're in a cold table getting x-rays all over. So it's painful. It's uncomfortable. So we decided to move to another test that it's called low dose whole body CT scan. So you can get in a few seconds, a quick pass through the, through the whole skeleton and you know if you have bone disease or not. That has never been questioned. And you know, everyone knows that's so obvious, but it's that is better than doing the bone survey, skeletal one survey. And yet we find ourselves with this cholesterol thought of, well, you know, MRD and we have to do more more clinical trials and so forth. And obviously you can tell from my my, my tone, I, I disagree with that. Is you simply better,
0: more precise more sophisticated information that you bring to the bedside. I mean, most people think when they hear cancer advocate, it has to be a patient. It's not always a patient. You are clearly evidence to the contrary that providers and doctors and experts in oncology can also be cancer advocates. Is it fair to say that the perspective was what's the holdup or is it not enough data or is this too complicated or are, are people not working together? Well, I, I think there's a whole spectrum of
1: how people perceive this. In my clinical practice, because we do it, I mean, and and I, and I offer it, and and you know that we we do it by various methodologies, but the you know the the key one we do is we do the FDA approved assay, which is a you know the Clonoseek, which is also you know it's reimbursed, so that's what we do. So they don't tell me you know why it's not accessible, but I hear that when I go and I give talks in other centers or patient support organizations, and I think there's a range of factors there. I mean, sometimes the treating physician just does not think that they're going to get uh, value for that information. Some of them know very, very well, you know, what this is. But I think it's fair to say some physicians also have not taken the time to become familiarized with this. So that's uh, part of the holdup. I think the second one is they need to talk to the pathologist. You know, the pathologists uh, hold uh, the control for what happens with those samples, but you have to work as a team. So I'm very fortunate. I go and I tell my pathologist, listen... We need to do this test. So we're doing that test. We're doing other tests. But even for older tests like, you know, like fish, for instance, if you don't advocate with your pathology team, that simply may not happen. So, so patients are not, not getting that done. But at the end of it all, I would love to see this be also approved as a surrogate for clinical trial development. I think that would give more people kind of the, the ease and the comfort in knowing that, you know, this is, this is here to stay. And that's one part where we really have not seen
0: much progress yet. There's conversations, but not as much action. So you, you ran right into my next question, which is that it is approved for certain indications. It's not approved for other indications. There's got to be some wiring mix-ups here and there. Can you explain that in lay speak, as if I were a patient that either wished they knew they could have this or doesn't know they need it now? Yes,
1: absolutely. Well, so let me let me put it this way. I, I talked about the proteins, and the proteins reach a certain level of, of sensitivity. But as it turns out, we can find uh, markers that would identify parts of the tumor that are in circulation in your blood in many many cancers. So this goes beyond myeloma. And uh, the question is, you know, why is it being held up and and not really studied in depth in in, in you know many other cancers? I'm, again, fortunate in myeloma we have the approval. But as I think about the test, I'm thinking, you know, why is it not being used in lymphoma? I think it's gaining some traction in CLL. I just came back from the American Society of Hematology, and they gave a plenary lecture on the use of this type of testing in the cerebrospinal fluid in patients who have brain lymphoma. And you know I'll tell you 5 years ago I was talking to a lot of lymphoma experts this is not to be self-serving but I told them you have to measure this in the CSF I bet you if you do that you're going to find the tumor imagine that you could skip a brain biopsy I mean that that to me would be would be golden right so that turns out to be the plenary session at this meeting that would be the case also for other tumors you, you know as we think about the solid tumors etc those uh, those tumors Shed some of that DNA, it's in the blood, and people will be able to say, hey, there's mutations here in the blood. That means there's more cancer. That means probably we have to think differently about this, whether that is prognosis or treatment choice. But I think, again, the fact that this is being treated in such an exceptional way is really slowing down the ability of us integrating this into the clinical practice. In myeloma, we have all these markers. So it's very easy to, to track things. But even then we have exceptions where we say, boy, this is really hard. This is a hard case. I cannot imagine my clinical practice in, you know, something like, uh, I'm going to use an extreme example, like colon cancer, where you go in and you take a cat scan and you measure those lesions and, you know, how many diameters and you count them. It's just very imprecise. So honestly, there's, there's a need to advance this more quantitative, they're also continuous variables, meaning you have some precision in what you're measuring for many cancers, and MRD is a great example of that.
0: Can you explain the definition of what surrogate means in this particular case?
1: Yes. Yeah, and, you know, there's, there, there, there can be multiple interpretations, but at the end of the day, it's just an indirect marker that would be able to predict some, uh, what's called kind of a harder outcome down the line, something like, you know, overall survival or progression free survival. When you look at the literature, specifically in myeloma, it is uh, so clear that if you're able to become MRD negative, the group of patients that are able to do that is highly enriched for patients that are going to do very well long term, meaning longer disease control. And also, I think the indicators are that some of these patients, if they keep this control for that duration, might end up being cured. We can only say that, of course, retrospectively. So, if you know if years down the line, we're going to say yes, yeah, as we looked back, you know, patients who had MRD negativity for four years, maybe only twenty percent of them relapse but maybe 80% are still under their
0: controls. And that's the kind of information I would love to have today. So with your relationship with the many nonprofit organizations in this space, is there one common thread that they've all rallied behind that you support in terms of better trials, better potential for approvals, and this conversation around getting it approved for surrogate? You know, if we have surrogate markers that are considered accurate,
1: and I would argue that this is very accurate, the consequence of that is that you can greatly accelerate the development of drugs. And if you can do that, uh, several things happen. The most obvious one is we can get drugs to the bedside faster. Who doesn't like that? So if you know if we have a good enough marker that tells you that drug is going to work better, we should try to do everything to move that process and, and be faster so that the patients can get it in, you know earlier than later. But there's also other consequences that I think are very interesting. If you do that, then the cost of development goes down. And if the cost of development goes down, there's more competition. And if there's more competition and with a decreased cost of development, then you end up having more pressing competing forces for the pricing for some of these things. So I think it's in everyone's interest that, A, you know, you accelerate the process by which these drugs make it into the clinic, and B, you, you have competitive forces that will make it uh, even more accessible to a larger number of people. So it seems to me that there should be really pressing desire to have things like this be considered official surrogate markers for uh,
0: as points for clinical trials. So everyone wants an enemy. I think that's just human nature. Um, <laughs> without actually considering whomever might be named as an enemy, what are the forces preventing this from accelerating faster? Because- I mentioned this in episode one, and I have been working in the MRD patient advocate space since 2015. We're taping this at the end of 2021. What's the holdup in these particular conversations, and why is there still a holdup? I wish I
1: knew the answer, because then it would be so easy to start throwing your specific arguments against that. But I do perceive that the significant component has to do with culture, and that culture sometimes is very deliberate in saying, no, I don't want to do this because this sounds fancy enough that I'm going to treat it as if it were a drug, and I want to treat it in such a way that it requires these clinical trials. I think a more pragmatic and I would say more realistic approach is that you really can clearly tell the outcomes of patients in clinical trials according to their ability to become negative, and therefore, I think this plays a, a significant role in the decision-making process, and then again, hopefully, in the approval. I wish, uh, you know, the regulatory authorities, specifically the FDA, could also see more clearly what, you know, what we're talking about when we talk about MRD. I think the upside is much greater than any potential downside. There is no test that will ever be perfect. Uh, you know, there's there's always situations where you will find exceptions, where you will find that a uh, test like this may not predict at the individual level, but at the group level, it's pretty good. And that's, at the end of the day, what we do with clinical trials is at the group level. It's not at the individual level. So I wish, A, you know, from the medical side, we have a more sort of a uh, pro-innovation, kind of friendly, pressing audience in that regard. I think we have that in many ways from the patient groups,
0: but also receptiveness from the FDA. So what's interesting to me as a patient advocate and a cancer survivor, in this case, it's not about gathering patients to tell their story on the Hill to get a bill passed. That manifest doesn't work. In this situation, because you can get all the ODAC meetings and for the listeners, that's when patients speak at regulatory events at the FDA to talk about the patient version of why this should approve something. There's only so many of those you can do. What is the role, if any, of the patient to get the FDA to come around in this particular situation? Huh, that's a great question. I think uh, I was talking to colleagues recently
1: about the delivery of this message. In that case, we were thinking about the target audience being other physicians who may still be wondering or on you know on the fence about the use of this type of technology and I came to realize that we have shown all the data at the high level at the big data at the clinical trial analysis, and I think the patient' stories can be quite powerful here and um uh, I know a bunch of anecdotes don't make data, but on the other hand, as you start like listening to the details of people that go through this testing and how this is meaningful to them, I think that's sometimes more impactful than, than the data itself. So I'll give you two examples. I have many, but I'll just choose two. Just before we started this recording, I got an email with the results of an MRD on one of my patients. And in fact, uh, this patient you know, had a testing that showed MRD negative zero at the beginning of 2020. So now he has a sample collected almost two years later on December 6, 2021, and it remains at zero. And I'm itching to call him home because, you know, this is someone who will know when we finish this recording that he has two years of sustained MRD negativity. This is boding pretty well for long-term control for his disease. I will be very careful in how I say thanks to him, but this will be very, very meaningful. I have another patient who had not been able to achieve MRD negativity through, you know, series of treatments. We went on to change treatment upon his request. To try to see if we could make him negative, and he did, and he has been sustaining MRT negative also for two years, and he tells me and he texts me, it's like the peace of mind that I have because of that conversation you and I had about that result is priceless. So I, I you know, I would could only hope that more people who practice kind of would participate in this. In fact, I'm saying you're missing out on this conversation if so you're not doing this at the clinical level, and I would only hope that those stories then translate to regulatory you know, agencies and and, and decision makers that they can see how important this is becoming for patient
0: care. This is probably an unanswerable question, but if there's a way to figure out a percentage of times that patients are made aware of this versus times that patients are not made aware of this, do you have an over-under? Boy, you know,
1: I, I can tell you, if I see zero in the report and, you know, I immediately pick up the phone and tell the patient, so I call them wherever we are, you know, Saturday night, I call them home. I would want to be interrupted with that phone call. We have to put it in context when it's high as well, too, because it may be in the middle of treatment and maybe someone who's in the relapse setting, et cetera. I would hope that it's not missed uh, many times because, you know, it is an involved process. So if you send it out, you're going to see this. This comes back. It comes, you know, in our way, it comes back two forms in the form of an email, the medical record. So at least in our own practice, I would say it would be incredibly rare. I, I don't say doesn't happen ever. It probably happens every now and then. But I think there's such involvement with, you know, how we have to think about the sample and we're waiting for that. And interestingly, the patients are calling now. Once the patients know, I get phone calls is are my results back. And I know what my results are. So so it'd be hard for us to miss it at this point. Yeah, I would hope like we
0: wouldn't need to clone you too much. <laughs> oh, No. No, that would be that would be problematic for for many reasons. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I want to get to one more thing specifically, which is, all right, we're five years ahead of now. Someone's listening to this show five years from now. What are they going to shake their head at? Like, I can't believe they were were discussing this back then.
1: Oh, I will tell you, I was given a a lecture about this for a meeting called the Comey meeting, which is in France. And there were a bunch of people that were youngsters. uh, They were working on acute leukemia. And then they come and started coming. It's like, Why are you guys even debating this? I don't get it. Why is this controversial? This is like uh, what lawyers would say, it's self-evident, prima facie, right? This is like so obvious. And I think that's what's going to happen in time, that we're going to be looking back at this time and saying, I don't know why we were dancing around this and wasting our time thinking about the worth of this. So I think five years from now, people will look at the treatment strategies. I think by then, we will probably have MRD-adapted therapy meaning if you don't reach a point, you escalate. If you have reached a sustained negativity, you stop therapy. You gauge your treatments based on the ability to achieve MRD. Maybe MRD would be part of personalized medicine, that you have different tracks for the different genetic subtypes, and at different time points, MRD negativity becomes important. And they will say, yeah, that was a standard tool. I I use many analogies when I think about diagnostic tests. I say sometimes, you know, in, in medicine, it's, you don't have to go that far back. We used to try to detect colon cancer with uh, what was called a barium enema, right? It's like, who, who would do that nowadays? We have colonoscopies. We have DNA kits for methylation, etc. cetera. And, and once I asked our radiologist, our chair of radiology here, I said, is there any situation ever where you would tell one of your staff, you know, it's better to use a lower resolution piece of equipment? Like instead of a, you know, 7 MRI, maybe we should use a 1T MRI. She said, no. I mean, the the whole path is better sensitivity, more resolution, more precision. And I think this is one more step in the diagnostics in that way. So you're having dinner with Janet Woodcock, the head of the FDA. What would you say to her? And I would say, listen, this is what's happening. We really need your help because this is how well this is working. And if you could help us out, this is not going to be only useful at the individual level. But this is going to be great as we think about the development of drugs. And I think the FDA... Will sit in glory being you know seen as an institution that allows a faster pathway for development of drugs so they get faster to the bedside and obviously for the improvement of survival of patients
0: our next guest is dr ola Langren. he is a professor of medicine and the chief of of the Myeloma and Experimental Therapeutics Program at the Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center at the University of Miami. This conversation is largely around the idea that if you are sick with something and there is a test that can help you make it not worse or to know your fate in advance, should a patient have the right to that test? I think the answer is yes. Why would that not be yes? That's the right answer. Get that right out of the gate. So the question I have for you is, what are the barriers to improving awareness of doctors to let patients know about this? And it has been approved already by the FDA, this test. And yet in certain cases, some patients with certain indications are made aware of it because it's there, but the data isn't out yet or the science isn't there yet. Help me understand why it isn't made available to other patients.
2: Yeah, you're absolutely right that we already have an FDA-cleared uh, and also CMS-approved for Medicare for reimbursement assay for MOD testing in multiple myeloma. So why is it not used more, and uh, where is the holdback for, for private practice doctors? Well, I do think that there are, are, there are really two major utilities, if you want, of an MOD assay from a clinical perspective. The so one is using MOD as an endpoint for drug approval. That means that when new medicines are being developed, you have to provide some form of evidence that the drugs are safe and effective. And the latter of the effective currently is a clinical endpoint, is overall survival or what's called progression free survival, the time till patient unfortunately have the disease returning back. So if you can show there is improvement there, you could get the drug approved. That's how the drugs are approved. Also, overall response is part of that. So if MRD became a drug endpoint, that means that you could develop a study and you could test for MOD, which happens much sooner than the clinical endpoints. And if you could show that there is superiority, the FDA could approve the drugs. So the reality now is that drugs would be approved much, much faster and patients would get access years faster than they currently do. It would really dramatically change the whole landscape for patients. The other of the two uh, trajectories where I see MRD has a role in the clinic is if MRD were to be used as a tool to change therapy. So examples could be a newly diagnosed patient treated with the most modern effective drugs we have, achieving MRD negativity. Maybe that patient could forego a bone marrow transplant or the patient could be treated on some continuous therapy, what we call maintenance therapy. If there is recurring disease through MRD, there's a conversion from negative to positive with a reliable test. If that would prompt initiation of new therapy, maybe the clinical progression could be prevented. So what's missing here is really There there is lack of studies proving that MOD
0: is a useful tool. Those trials are in the works. All right. So let's go back a little bit for the sake of the listeners. What is an endpoint? An endpoint
2: is uh, something that has been defined either by the community of experts or the regulatory authority or any other major body as something that you could use to declare success or, or failure. So overall survival is, for example, a regulatory endpoint for the full approval for drug development. So if you have a randomized study, you compare the experimental drug with the control arm. If you treat patients with these drugs on the two arms, when the study is mature, the data is complete, you compare how overall survival looks for the two arms. And if there is a significant improvement for the experimental
0: arm, that will lead to the full approval. That's the end point, overall survival. All right, thank you for explaining that. So in situations where it is covered, it is approved, and there is a patient that's a candidate for this test, how frequently is that patient made aware of this? And if they're not made aware of it, why? Well, so if there is a test uh, that is approved, First
2: of all, the doctors need to be aware of it. And to be quite uh, direct with you back, I'm not so sure that every single doctor out there that treats patients with, for example, multiple myeloma is really aware of this test being available, how it works. Keep in mind that for myeloma, there are 35,000 patients diagnosed every year. Around 80%, that's uh, 28,000 of these patients, they are followed, they are diagnosed, they are treated, monitored by doctors that maybe see only one to five patients every year. The other 20 percent of the 35,000, they are seen by experts in the field and for, for the most part those experts do myeloma only. They only see patients with myeloma every day, every week, all the time. So there's a very big difference in the detailed uh, knowledge on what's going on. I think if the doctors, they don't know it, the patients for sure will not know it, unless they look online or they hear it from other people.
0: It's fair to say that if a patient has multiple myeloma and they see a myeloma expert, they're way more likely to be made aware of this test, and then that data from them being on this test further accelerates approvals?
2: I think that's patients seeing an expert will for sure have access to more of the newer things and there was actually a paper just a few years ago in the prominent journal Journal of Clinical Oncology or JCO showing that for myeloma patients that are diagnosed and treated by these 20% expert community there is a significant overall survival difference in favor of being followed diagnosed treated by the expert centers and I think that's probably true for a lot of things. Think about, uh, for example, delivery of babies. Uh, There's been a literature for years showing that units that have very small numbers, they have very different outcomes. The same is true for surgery and so forth. So it's not really surprising that you see the difference. I think that going to expert clinics is critical when you have something uh, that is less common.
0: Right. But if 80% of patients don't have access to those specialty clinics, what are they to do? Who fends for them? Who defends them? Who, uh, who has their back? Well, I think that, in
2: my opinion, there have been a lot of bad things with COVID. COVID is really a terrible thing that we're all kind of living through, and hopefully it will end soon. I think out of all the bad things that have happened, there are a few things that I think have changed what you bring up, the access, in a better way. I think the telemedicine development is something that I would never have predicted. I tried for years to make our service available through telemedicine, but we were always pushed back for various reasons, for insurance reasons, the institutional reasons, and people just said it doesn't work, those types of things. When COVID happened, two weeks after we closed down, when I practiced in New York City, I had telemedicine a whole day for the first time in my life. And after that, I've just done so much telemedicine. I could have clinic one day and serve patients in five or ten different states. And I think this is probably never going to go away. Internationally also. So I think that having access to experts' sites around the country via telemedicine,
0: that's actually possible for every patient. It sounds like a fair assumption to think that over the over the next like the next decade of cancer advocacy and i 'll almost call it patient protection is going to be taking advantage of telehealth and telemedicine services right I would say yes
2: I think this this is a revolution for the better for patients wherever you live, you can have access to the same care, which used to not be the case, and you could argue technically that you could live somewhere very remote, and you could still do it. But it would be extremely expensive and time-consuming. And if you, if you were sick, it would probably not just be practical. But today, you could set up an appointment, and you could do it through your computer wherever you live. Uh, you could have a wireless phone, and you could do it from anywhere. I've seen patients out on boats. They just did a little break fishing. And I had telemedicine. I mean, who would predict that could even happen?
0: That's incredible. That's just incredible. I
2: actually gave a patient the information. I have great news for you. You are MOD negative. The patient said, thank you so much. That really made my boat trip so much better.
0: (laughs) That's amazing. Are you involved at all in the decentralized trials, decentralized testing movement? The decentralized
2: testing movement of MOD... Uh, is that what you refer to?
0: Yeah, the idea that, you know, again, just because – so you, you, you have your telehealth visit, but you still need to go to a clinic and get things done. Or if that clinic doesn't have what you need, you still have to drive a billion miles to some place. Now, in certain – at least in the states here, under certain cases, maybe not hematologic in this case, you can just have the stuff shipped to your local center. Is that something that's happening in the world of multiple myeloma? I think that the
2: decentralization is probably happening in very many different ways. So what I'm involved in is to decentralize on a more kind of micro level, if you want. So I moved from New York City in November 2020 to Miami, where I took the job as the new chief for their myeloma program and the experimental therapeutics program at Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center in Miami. I have worked very hard for the past 12, 13 months to raise the bar significantly, hire a lot of people, install all these new tests and more, and also to set up a satellite system around Miami. Because a lot of people live north or south or west of the city, and it's a long drive. And I learned a hard way that even if you have fantastic drugs, fantastic tests what really matters to patients is, where can I park the car? Where can I have lunch? Driving distance and things like that. So I have the telemedicine to overcome that internationally. I have patients in many, many countries and across the entire United States all the time. But when it comes to the actual testing, we can only reach out to our local region here, but we have set up satellites around the city where we can offer all these things for all our patients. Patients still have to fly to Miami or to, to some city nearby and come to any of our satellites. Technically, it would be possible for us to establish operations technically anywhere, but then it comes into kind of liability and organization and priority.
0: We have not yet crossed that bridge. So for now, we operate here in Miami. But again, you got to start somewhere, yes. right? You've been very active with the patient advocate organizations over the years, are patients a pain in the ass or do we actually help? I think there is
2: never any moment when a patient is a pain in the butt. Uh, I think uh, doctors and all the healthcare providers are always here every day, all the time, every minute to help the patients. That's just that's just how it goes. Other moments when patients are upset, frustrated, they are angry and have a lot of emotional uh, kind of reactions when they interact with me and the team probably not as much with me it could happen with me but probably more with other members of the team the nurses or the pharmacist or so forth but we are all trained professionals so the patients are always right and it's of course very upsetting if a patient is newly diagnosed if there is a relapse if there's a complication it's very disappointing to the patients it's very disappointing to us too But we have to help the patient. That's our job. So we listen. We can be asked the same question an endless number of times. I do think for the purpose of moving the field forward, I think relatively speaking, I think patients are playing a greater and a greater role. And I think it kind of feeds into what we talk about here with telemedicine and uh, how communication has really changed. I think... You can put something on Twitter, you can put it on any other social media and immediately you could have traction. So patients, they are kind of uh, the ones that are going to benefit from it or if it's not gets done, they they could have the the worst kind of impact by things not moving the right direction. So I think it's a teamwork between patients and the healthcare workers, both on a one-on-one
0: level, helping the individual patient but also to drive the field forward. Right, and that kind of speaks to policy and influence over the FDA. We had discussed before we started taping that, if it was a drug, you know, you get patients to lobby for policy change or reimbursement change or, you know, it's an easier win in many, many cases to set up a hill day or talk to this legislator or or get the state-based reimbursements. With a diagnostic, it's way different and the patient has much less of an influential role in those decisions. Where do you guys come in? Where does the where where does the scientific world come in to fill that gap? The scientific gap, filling the gap? Uh, of getting the FDA to actually approve it for different indications, like all, all the places where it's not Medicare-reimbursed re- yet.
2: So for multiple myeloma, the MRE testing is, as we discussed earlier, FDA-cleared, meaning that it would be a test that you could, as a doctor, prescribe or order, and it would be justified by legislation because it's also cms approved if you have a patient on medicare they would pay for the test although there is no law dictating that anything that cms approved must be approved by commercial insurance usually if cms approves it usually the insurance companies would pay for it also it's in the nccn guideline that dictates what is, again, in line with insurance and Medicare. So it's approved and endorsed by all these different bodies. I don't think that that really is anything that holds back the use of it. I think what really holds it back is what I said before, is the fact that 80% of patients with myeloma are diagnosed, monitored, treated, followed, by physicians that see one to five patients per year. And for them, I think there is no clear data to guide. So why is MRD not done? So these are good questions. I think it's probably lack of uh, education and uh, lack of information to those physicians that are seeing these patients. I think the academic centers are doing it gradually more and more. I have used MRI testing in my practice for 15 years. I've done it on every patient that come to me and I continue using it. I use it to change therapy and there are naysayers pushing back saying, there is no data to prove it. Well, my answer back is that there is not yet any large randomized study that has proven it in a randomized fashion. That is correct. But my last program I uh, led before I came to the University of Miami was in New York, and we had over 10,000 visits in one year for myeloma. And when I looked in the database, it was obvious to me that you could use it. It's not published, so I cannot go out and say it's based on published data. But like many other things in life, if you ask someone who has done the same thing over and over again, that person is quite likely to probably know the answer, although it's not published as a randomized
0: study. So we're just having information years ahead. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it, being ahead of your time is always a good problem to have, I suppose.
2: I mean, I think if you have a, if you have a handyman coming to your house and there is a, a pipe that's leaking, if you ask if this is a good handyman, how are you going to fix it? And the person says, do it this or that
0: way, you're not going to ask for a randomized study. <laughs> That's a very good allegory. I like that. I asked this of uh, Raphael also, and this is more metaphorical, but everyone wants an enemy. Everyone wants to point their fingers towards something. I think that's just human nature to, to need to know why this isn't happening or if only I knew that this was there or in that particular incident. Is there another side to this? Well, I don't think that there is a,
2: there is no evil side to my knowledge. I think it's just uh, a lot of work that needs to be done. I think it's education and experience. And I think it's human nature that every time there is some new opportunity, the majority of people, they usually don't turn there. People are kind of waiting to see. And then you have the early adopters. I probably have been part of that for a long time. I am an early adopter for a lot of new technologies, new drugs. I'm very interested in development, making things better. And then you have people that are less interested in that, that are kind of the more traditional, the naysayers. You need to prove it with multiple studies over and over and over again. And... I sometimes joke internally with a fellow saying, if you're someone who is interested in science, you are so busy doing all the experiments to generate all the data. You have a day job. So you really don't have time to talk about these things. While the naysayers, they don't have a day job. They just say no all the time. That's their only thing. So if you just listen, you will hear a lot of no's from some people And then there are a few people saying yes, but they have a day job generating data. And then the majority, they're just like passively waiting to see what's going on. So I guess if I take you up on that ride when you're looking for some kind of pushback, maybe the naysayers, they don't have a day job. Maybe that's what it is.
0: So we're going to have a lot of people listening to this series who either have a hematologic condition or who have had it. Uh, and are either living with or beyond or thankfully out of the woods with this. For those who were given MRD testing that are grateful because it ideally put them in a different sort of direction for getting, you know, cured or whatnot, or for those who were not made aware and wished they had known, what is the actual role of the patient of the advocate communities in this particular situation? If a patient wants to be tested, and
2: I think it makes very good sense to be tested for the reasons I outlined, it's such an important prognostic factor. And I also, I didn't bring it up, but I I think it's not rocket science. MRD testing is not like another test. It's just, is there detectable disease? Yes or no. And if you want to make sure that there is no detectable disease left, that is what MRD testing does. So a patient could tell the local doctor, I would like to do mod testing. And if the doctor says, we don't, we don't want to do that, or we cannot do that, there are centers that can do that. And we talked about telemedicine. So setting up an appointment with a specialized center and see how all that could be arranged. So we have had patients flying from all the 50 states to us. When I was in New York, I had patients flying from the other 50 states. Now they are flying here. New patients, patients in Los Angeles, uh, reaching out uh, two weeks ago, asking, can I come and do MRD testing? Yes, of course. So we go over everything, we look, and uh, then we kind of agree to a plan. Sometimes there could be other indicators of residual disease, so maybe it's not really needed because the blood test could still indicate there is a little bit detectable disease, and I think it would be unnecessary to travel and to do the testing. If someone wants to take this approach to to look with a more
0: sensitive technology, we could set that up technically for anyone. Is it fair to say that the biggest hurdle is over and now we're in like the last mile of making sure that this is sort of an, an equitable option for everyone? I think that um, the biggest hurdle
2: I think is over. I think it's over because it's we have a test, it's approved, it's reimbursed. That was the main main barrier. Now, the next uh, hurdle is to uh, have those trials reading out showing that you could use it for treatment decision making, or you could just learn it from your own clinic. If you treat a lot of patients, you can see that that is very reasonable to do. And it's is not more wrong than anything else that doctors do. A lot of clinical medicine is judgment. So using a tool that shows there is no disease left behind to step down uh, on the intensity of therapy, or if there is a recurring disease, to think about taking earlier action rather than waiting for things to slide off the, the road. So I think that is happening, and that is what needs to continue moving forward. An observation I made myself is... As someone who has worked as a pioneer in the field of MRD testing, I have been invited so many times to debates at the scientific meetings. I've been at the lymphoma myeloma meeting in New York City every year for eight or nine or ten years, invited to debate yes for MRD testing. And I lost the debate every year until just a few years ago when I started winning and now they don't even have the debate anymore. That tells me that... That's progress. That's progress. Now yeah. I'm invited to give review talks about the latest updates in MRD testing. Where are the new technologies? Where is the field going? So it's really sh- changed completely from a debate that I always lost to where we are right now.
0: No, and kudos for that. You know, What did they say change comes slowly, but only from within? That's how it goes. <laughs> So are you having dinner with the head of the FDA? What do you want to say to them? Well, I would say we need your help.
2: Uh, We need your help to uh, approve MRD testing as a regulatory endpoint for multiple myeloma. Because right now, patients are waiting too many years for the traditional endpoints to read out. And we can not read out... On average, for a newly diagnosed setting, probably five or more years ahead with MOD testing. For the relapse setting, I would predict about two years or so earlier. And also, with MOD testing, we can stop those trials sooner where the drug is not good enough. So we don't expose individuals on trials uh, to drugs
0: that are not going to make it. That's great. I mean, that's the persuasion we need. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll get that dinner set up for you. Send me, send me <laughs> the invites. So when it comes to patient care, there, there are so many options that are now becoming available that, you know, new medications and new testing are just being introduced like each year. And that's great for patients. But if you don't have access to these drugs or these tests, I mean, what, what's the point? And that's the dilemma in the case of MRD and many other diagnostics like it, not just in the cancer space either. I cannot understate how critically important it is for patients to know that there's a way to work with their treatment teams and and to know if their treatment is working for them and to the best of its ability. It's really about what the patient needs first. Simply put, all we're asking for is for patients to get all the access that they can to the medications that they need, such as MRD, because you know what? It could actually save a life. That's not too much to ask in my humble opinion. So many thanks to our guests, Allison Silberman, Lizette Figueroa, and Drs. Rafael Fonseca and Ola Langren. And thank you for listening to Testing Our Patients. For more information about this series and other shows and series on the Offscript Health Network, visit offscript.com. That's offscript, no T, dot com. That's all for now. If you like this show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all of your friends to listen. Tell us your story in your own voice by leaving us a message at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-283-4666. Testing our patients is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producer is Ariel Nachman. Our sound mixer is Kyle Moore, and our host is Matthew Zachary. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com.